you know, there's, there's a lot of jobs that I think are easier because of the internet, and I think there's some that are probably worse. Uh, among those that are, are worse, I, I assume, and I've heard a couple talk about this, that doctors and nurses probably hate the internet. Um, once upon a time, if you got sick and had symptoms, uh, you would go to a doctor to find out what illness you had. Uh, no one would go to a library and try and flip through books from medical school and doctor's school to figure out what diseases they had and then go to the doctor and say, I've been doing research on this at the, the library and why you think I have the flu, I think I have uh, Ebola, okay? The symptoms could go either way. I'd like for you to treat me for bird flu. Um, but, but such is the, the way doctors and nurses have to work today, uh, where everyone shows up uh, and says, uh, hey doc, I've already Googled my symptoms. I just need you to give me the prescription. Uh, you may have seen, there's a sign that I, I saw uh, kind of talking about this the other day. It's, I don't know if I've got it up here. It says, warning, patients will be charged extra for annoying the doctor with self-diagnosis off the internet. <laughs> I love that. Uh, we've got a few nurses. Is this, is this right? Uh, show up and tell you exactly what you do know and don't know uh, because your Google search is better than their medical degree. Uh, but whether we turn to Dr. Google, Dr. Mom, or an actual physician, uh, what we all actually understand is that physical symptoms are connected to an actual illness. That, that when your body has a fever, it's telling you that, that there's something inside of you that's wrong, that you need to either get diagnosis or medical treatment or more water, more sleep. We know that physical symptoms are connected to a physical illness. This week, I, I don't know if you noticed this, as you were reading through the middle part of Luke's gospel in our reading plan for the week, uh, as you're reading through it, money kept coming up over and over and over again. Uh, in the middle of part of Luke's gospel, and, and I love that Luke does this, if you, I don't know if you noticed the beginning and end of this week's readings uh, included uh, Luke saying at the end of chapter 9, and now Jesus resolutely headed towards Jerusalem, and it ends with it saying, and now Jesus arrives in, in Jerusalem. Luke splits his, uh, his book up into uh, beginning of his ministry, middle ministry, and end ministry, and it's all about these phrases. And so the middle ministry, uh, over and over again, has stories that deal with money. And, and whether you notice it or not, I, what Jesus is doing with money is not necessarily telling you how to use it, but what I think he's doing is giving us financial symptoms that are supposed to make us realize that we have spiritual problems. The physical symptoms uh, reveal to you that you have a physical illness. I believe financial problems can reveal to you that you have a spiritual illness. And so in these stories that Jesus keeps bringing up, stories like Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler and, and, the, and these others that we're going to look at today, talking about not worrying about money, I believe that all of these are giving us financial symptoms for spiritual problems. And we're going to look at these today. And we're going to ask ourselves, okay, what are the, what's the financial problem he's talking about? And what's the spiritual diagnosis that it offers for us today? And what's the treatment that we need going forward? We're going to start in Luke chapter 12 with the uh, parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd says to him, talking about Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This is a tough teaching. I want to tell you right now, I, I think that what you, remember, what we're looking at is what are the financial problems that reveal a spiritual problem. Okay, financial symptoms, spiritual problem. Uh, what I don't want you to do is read this and say, see, God's opposed to savings. I should spend all my money all the time. That's not what this is. God is not opposed to you having savings. But if you're rich towards yourself and not towards God, that's the spiritual problem. Uh, this is kind of from the wisdom of, of Toby Keith. You know the country song? Uh, I want to talk about me, want to talk about my. I'm going to pretend I have to look it up so you don't think I actually have this song memorized. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about my, I want to talk about number one, oh my, me, I, what I think, what I like, what I talk, what I know, what I see, that kind of a, a thing. Really good country music. Because um, it rhymes, it has to be true. That, this passage reminds me of that song. And let me show you why. Uh, go to the next slide. Look at this. He thought to himself. And in fact, you can just, if, you, if you're one of the people that writes in your Bibles, go through this parable and write down every time it says my, me, I, self. It's all over the place. What shall I do? I have no place. My crops, I'll do. I will tear to my barns. I will store my grain. I'll say to myself, me, 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 me. The spiritual problem that's in this parable is that this guy is so consumed with himself that he has no care for God or anybody else. If the greatest command, uh, as Jesus teaches us, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, all that this guy got out of that whole teaching is love yourself and invest accordingly. That's all he got. And he does an incredible job of loving himself. And I love that the way Jesus starts the parable isn't that one year a guy earned a lot of extra. Look at the source of his blessing. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. The ground is given credit at the beginning of the story. The ground yielded an abundant It's not this guy's work ethic. It's not this guy's uh, investment strategy. The ground gave him what he had. Jesus wants to begin with this idea uh, that, that this guy didn't earn it, it's not worthy, that this is his blessing from God through the ground. 
And yet once God blesses him, all he does is use it to bless himself, to enjoy his own life. He doesn't think about God. He doesn't think about others. You know, the other thing that I think is interesting in this passage is that it talks about how he talks to himself. I mean, he's having this whole conversation with himself. Um, and, and I think that there's a little bit of an implied warning in that. I think the implied warning is this. If you love yourself more than you love God and more than you love anybody else, and you're only interested in yourself, you might end up alone. And when you go back to the original question, which is this brother that comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, can you go to my brother and tell him to give me my share of the inheritance? The brother who says, I'm more interested in money than the relationship with my brother. Can you get involved and, and break this relationship so I can have some money? Jesus says, let me tell you about a guy who didn't have anyone else in his life and spent all of his money on himself. And at the end of his life, he had nothing and he died early because he only wanted money and he didn't care about God and others. Oh. It's a tough teaching. It's a tough teaching. The spiritual sickness behind these financial problems is seen in being rich towards yourself instead of being rich towards God. It indicates that you love yourself more than you love God. It indicates that you love yourself more than you love and care for others. And it shows that you've got an idol that you're worshiping every time you look in the mirror. And so listen, it's not about how much you have in savings. That's part of it, but it's a financial symptom about a spiritual problem. If you've got a lot in savings, but you are at the same time rich toward God, then you're doing okay. It's a spiritual question. Your finances just give you an indicator that you can use to measure where you are spiritually. When you think about your investment portfolio, whether that's $5 or $5,000 or $500,000, are you being rich with what you have been given toward God? Or are you only interested in what you get out of it yourself? The next teaching Jesus offers is on worry. The previous one really talks about what, what do we do when we have an abundance, but he switches and he's now going to go to the other side of a coin, which is what do we do when we don't have enough or what do we do when we're worried about money? What do we do when, when all we can think about is what, how do I get all the things that I want and need? So keeping his teaching going, he goes, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you are, how much more valuable you are than birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things. Your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. 
Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Worry is a financial symptom of a spiritual problem. Worry um, is us believing uh, in, in things that aren't true about ourselves or about God. Uh, worry is when we get consumed about wanting to be in control of things in our life that we can't be in control of. Uh, and Jesus says, listen, don't worry about your food, your clothes, or your body. And then he gives them a, what's basically a true or false test. True or false test. True or false. Birds never worry. Let's actually take the test here. True or false? Birds never worry. Have you ever seen a worried bird? No. Uh, you haven't. If you, if you thought you saw a worried bird, you were mistaken. It was just doing something else that you, I don't know. Birds never worry. True or false? God gives birds everything they need to stay alive, including feathers and bird food. True. God loves you more than birds. If these things are true, Jesus' conclusion is this, stop worrying. But Jesus, what about tomorrow? Tomorrow, God's going to feed the birds. Well, yeah, but, but what about, is God going to feed the birds tomorrow? Yeah, but what about me? Does God love you more than birds? Yes. Then God's going to take care of you tomorrow too. What are you worried about? But, but what, about, what about in a week? Uh, in a week, is there still going to be grass in your yard? Yeah. Because does God provide for the grass? Yes. Does God love you more than grass? Yes. Then what are you so worried about? Uh, worry, I think, is one of the biggest problems that we have today. And worry is not a financial problem. It's a faith problem. It's not a financial problem, it's a faith problem. And here's why. There are three lies that have to exist in your life for worry to take root in you. The first lie is this. I am in control. You're not in control. God is in control. And you might think, no, no, I'm, I've got quite a bit of control. I, I'm well off. I've got a, a pretty good retirement fund. I've got a savings plan. I've got insurance. I'm in control of my financial future. And then God says to the rich man, your life will be demanded from you today, and then who will get your riches? Because you don't have anyone else to give it to. You're all alone because you don't love God and you don't love others. Financial symptoms, faith problem. You're not in control. God is. The second lie that you have to buy into uh, for worry to exist in your life is this, God won't take care of me. And, and there's several different ways that you might, I love, I heard a false. We're still in the true false. Thing. Well, do you believe God, God will take care of you, true or false? Then what are you worried about? For worry to exist, you have to answer that question false. And there's two ways you can think about it. it you either have to decide that God won't interrupt your life to make a difference because he can't do it, or you think that God doesn't care enough about you that he will do it. So whether it's can't or won't, you believe that God is not going to show up and take care of you, that he might actually care more about birds and grass than you. God won't show up. 
And the third one is this. Uh, I believe that God can show up and might show up, but I don't know that he's going to ask and act in my best interest. Uh-oh. God, I, I know that you might do what you think is best, but God, I know what's best for me more than you do. That's the lie. These three lies are the faith root that leads to financial worry. And I want you to test this. What's, just for a moment, think about your biggest worry. What is the thing that right now you're worrying about the most? Last night when you were going to bed, this morning when you woke up, that worry that is just gripping you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask this question. Think about the thing you're worried about. Can you fix it? If the answer is yes, then go ahead and fix it and get on to something else in your life. If the answer is no, then quit worrying about what you can't control. Give it up. Can God influence the outcome of the thing that you're the most worried about? I hope the answer is yes. If the answer is yes, then pray. If the answer is no, then you've really got a faith problem. Because there's nothing in your life that you're worried about that God can't influence. And the third question is this. In this thing that you're worried about and that is consuming you, do you trust God's goodness and wisdom above your own wants? If the answer to that is yes, then let the worry go. Worry is a faith problem. Worrying about clothes, money, life, it's not a financial problem, it's a faith problem. We think we can control what we can't, and we don't think that God can control what he can. We think we can control what we can't, and we think that God can't control what he actually is capable of doing. That's the faith problem at the root of worry. We've got to keep looking at it. Test worry. Give it to God. And Jesus keeps teaching, and, and it's no surprise that after a couple chapters, he comes back to money. In, in Luke chapter 16, uh, picking up in verse 19, Jesus is talking about the rich man and Lazarus, and this is one that we talk about uh, more often than maybe some of the others. He says, look, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. He lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, when he looked up and saw Abraham far away were Lazarus, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. 
No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. We sometimes forget the layers that this is happening for Luke. Even if someone rises from the dead, when he's writing his gospel, it occurs in the middle of the gospel. And if you're reading this for the very first time, you don't know that Jesus is going to die and then be resurrected on the third day. But when Luke wrote this down in his gospel, in his letter to Theophilus, he already knew the ending. This is a mic drop moment. That, that people who are not living the way that they're supposed to be living are people who are not doing that even after Jesus rose from the dead and told them that this is the way they're supposed to live. This is a heavy teaching. And I think we have to be careful with this because a lot of times we, we get, anytime there's a picture of heaven and hell, we immediately think plan of salvation. This is not a conversation about a plan of salvation. You do not automatically get to go uh, to heaven and be with Father Abraham just because you're poor. That's not built into this. You don't automatically uh, go to hell in a place of torment and fire just because you're wealthy in this life. Uh, this story is not trying to teach you how to be saved. It's doing something else entirely. What this story is intended to do is to be a mirror that we look at. And when you look at this story as a mirror, it's supposed to reflect back to you what Jesus is calling you to do and how he's calling you to live. And you're supposed to look at whether or not you're doing it. It's a financial symptom that indicates a spiritual problem. And if you read this story and you get uncomfortable, then you're, you need to see what's in the mirror. And what I believe this story is really seeking to do is for us to look into the mirror of this story to see our own reflection in a way that will help us to see other people better. Uh, for me, the problem that this rich man has in his life is it seems that the first time he's ever really seen Lazarus is in the afterlife. He spent his whole life not seeing Lazarus until he sees him standing next to Father Abraham. We've got a problem in our life if our wealth allows us to treat people like they're invisible. We've got a problem in our life if we're able to, to feel so high and mighty that there's people that are far enough below us, so low that they're just trying to eat the crumbs that are falling off the table, that we ignore them and that we don't see them. The problem in my mind is that, that this rich fool, this rich person has spent his whole life ignoring people that he could be blessing. It's a spiritual problem. And I believe that what we have to do if we want to begin to spiritually address the problem of ignoring invisible people is, is this. We have to ask, are you seeking to build your own name, your own empire, your wealth, your honor, leaving you with nothing at the end of your life? Remember the horseshoe last week? Are you seeking to build everything up? knowing that at the end of your life, you're gonna leave it to who knows what. You're not worried about what comes after you or the legacy or God or others. You're just building your best life. But the Jesus way is the opposite. The Jesus way is self-emptying. It's, self, um, it's putting other people first. It's seeking God's honor, not your honor, to exalt others, not to exalt yourself, so that in the end, God will exalt you. You don't have to exalt 
yourself? Will you allow yourself like Jesus to become nothing so that God will exalt you at the end of your life? Uh, does your wealth or material goods make some people invisible? Do you view your wealth as something you've earned for your benefit? We're back now to a little bit of the question that we started with. Did the ground give you your wealth or did you earn it? Did you, through your own effort, create all that you have in your empire and your family and your honor, or is it a gift of God? When we look at this story, we need to realize that the money that we've been given is God's. This is the, the spiritual treatment for a, a, a financial symptom is this. The diagnosis is that when we think that everything we have, I earned it and it's for me and my glory and my honor and my benefit, me, 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 my, 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 we've got a problem. And if we instead view everything that God has given us as a blessing from him, then, then we instead look at our bank account, whatever's in there, and we don't say, here's how much money I have. How can I use it for me and my wants and desires? We instead, instead say, here's how much God has given me, and it's still his. How can I use it for his purposes? How can I see money rightly? Because if we begin to see our money rightly, we will also begin to see people rightly. If I've got all my money because I'm so great and he's poor because he's so awful, I'm seeing Lazarus wrongly. But if I see my bank account and I go, God has blessed me and the money I have is still his, uh, Lazarus is struggling, but God wants me to see him and give him some of what God has given me that's still God's. You see the difference? The only thing different between me and Lazarus is that God's given both of us something. He's just waiting for me to give Lazarus what God gave me to give him. Because it's still God's money. That it's when we see money rightly that we see people rightly. It removes invisible people from the roads around us, from the neighborhoods around us. If the story makes you uncomfortable, then you need to keep reading it. If this story makes you uncomfortable, you need to keep reading it until it doesn't make you uncomfortable anymore. This story is one of the ones in the Bible that are intended to be a mirror that we look into over and over and over again that help us see ourselves rightly, see our money rightly, and see other people rightly. And if you read this story and you think, man, I feel guilty about the people I ignore, keep reading it until you stop ignoring them. And if you keep reading it, think, man, I feel guilty about the people I'm not blessing. Keep reading it until you don't feel guilty anymore. Because it's going to keep calling you to do what Jesus would have you do with his money if it was in your pockets. The next story I want to look at is in Luke 18. We've just got two more, and we're just going to look at them briefly. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. If I fast, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. This theme runs all through the Gospel of Luke, that if you try and build yourself up and make yourself great, you will get knocked down. But if you try and humble yourself and put God in others first, you will be lifted up. I love this story because what we see, I don't think it's about their job descriptions. I don't think all Pharisees are bad. I don't think all tax collectors are good. What I think you see is one person who says, I follow the rules. That's good enough for me. And another one who's actually doing the work of spiritual evaluation. Here's the invitation today to you. Here's the challenge for you today is to do the work that the tax collector is doing of going home and saying, what are the financial symptoms of my life that reveal spiritual illness and unhealth? And be willing to call out to God and say, God, have mercy on me. I've got room to grow and I'm willing to do it. And I don't want to be the way I am. And God, I need your help to get where I need to be. I've got financial problems that reveal spiritual inadequacy. God, help me. God will lift you up. God will get you through. That's the guy that leaves justified is the one willing to do the honest evaluation. Who's willing to do the tough work of seeing what the spiritual reality is. Just a little bit later. Verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they talk about following the commandments and they talk about all the things that they've done. He says, I've done all these And in verse 22, Jesus hears this and he says to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Then those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. These are some tough teachings. It's not fun to talk about money because we we know that in some sense we're incredibly wealthy just by being um, Americans that there's very little uh, that we struggle with, but there's also some who have poverty and it's uncomfortable if you have poverty to talk about money because you run into problems with jealousy and greed. And if you've got too much money, you run into problems with greed and, uh, and feeling confident in your money instead of having your trust in God. We don't like this because money causes us to value ourselves against other people in ways that we shouldn't, but we inherently do. It's uncomfortable to talk about worry. It's uncomfortable to talk about, do, you, do your finances reflect loving God and loving others? It's uncomfortable to talk about invisible people. These are tough teachings. And at the end of, of these kinds of lessons, we want to ask Jesus, who then can be saved? Who can do these things? And these two stories hold this promise that if we do the work of the tax collector who goes into the temple and says, God, I'm a sinner. God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And and we call out to God and know that it's not by our work that we're able to do this. The spiritual solution to the financial problems is this. Turn to God and he will lift you up. Turn to God and he will provide healing. Turn to God and what is impossible with you is possible with God. 
we all need to do have this, this financial checkup that Jesus, through the middle part of his ministry, keeps calling us to do. And when the, the actual doing things in our life to change our financial habits, to change our financial health, to change the spiritual reality that's behind all of that seems too hard, we need to remember that it's not your work, but God's work that's going to get you through it. What's impossible with man is possible with God. And I'll tell you this, is that, that the impossible things that God can get us through, he can even get you through the eye of a needle. That teaching is tough. It's hard for 